Hey everyone, this is Prashant and I'll be your host for the VC10X podcast and today we have Mike and Jorv from Reflect Ventures with us. Reflect Ventures invests in core infrastructure areas where there are significant barriers to entry and where digitization can enable huge economic gains. Some of the focus areas include logistics, supply chain, distribution, commerce and fintech. They primarily co-invest with reputable institutional lead VCs in series seed and A or B rounds of B2B and B2B2C startups. In this episode, we talk about their investment thesis at Reflect Ventures, investing in emerging markets, how they offer venture scale returns without the typical venture capital risk involved, and the hair blown back moment, and a lot more. So without wasting any time, let's dive straight in. Oh wait, if you haven't subscribed to VCGenX yet, please do and give us a 5-star rating if you like this episode. Now, let's start. Hey, Mike and Joe. So good to have you on the VC10X podcast. How are you guys doing? Uh, excellent, Prashant. Thank you very much for having We're doing us. great. Thank you. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So it's the first time uh, we are having two guests uh, from, at the same time uh, in an episode of VC10X. I'm pretty excited for this one. Uh, and to get things started, uh, I want to understand uh, what's the story of Reflect Ventures and how it got started. Uh, Mike, you want to take that? Sure. Okay, so about a year and a half ago, I and a few of my friends, we were very interested in investing in a startup, uh, actually in the insure tech space. Uh, their minimum ticket was 500,000 US dollars. That was a bit much for any one individual among our group. It's a lot much, I should say, for any one individual among our group. So, you know, we tried to negotiate them down. They refused, but they said, why don't you go in as a group? So we figured out how to do that. We figured out how to set up a syndicate, recruit people, get the money, and then invest it into them. And once we had done that, it made sense to say, well, you put in all this effort in order to do the first one. The second one is a heck of a lot easier. Do it again. And that's what we started doing. We started doing it again and again and again. And that's what we've been doing for the last year and a half. Yeah, that sounds incredible. Uh, and Jor, I would like your view on why you preferred the syndicate model over the VC fund model. Well, we have per- currently been using the syndicate model because that's where we have started. Um, um, we've been running for about 18 months. And um, in, in this time period, we found the syndicate model to be flat, fast and flexible. But as we get a little bit more familiar uh, and consistent with our investing, we will probably take the, the next step of having a fund so that we have uh, more committed capital that we can uh, uh, do deals with on a more regular and stable basis. But we will also continue to have syndicates uh, since we have some members in our investor in, a, in, a, in our investor group that uh, one do like to invest deal by deal, or two, uh, in addition to investing in the fund, also like to uh, to overweight certain uh, investments. Yeah, and I'm always interested uh, when like a syndicate and a VC fund operate simultaneously uh, by the same people, because then there can potentially be a conflict of maybe deal flow. Because if a deal comes in, where is it going first? Is is the VC fund seeing that first, or is it going to the syndicate first? So, what's your view on that? The VC will see the fund first. Uh, sorry, the VC will see the deal first. The fund um, that, will see the deal first. Uh, fund. Sorry, the fund will see the deal first. Because I, uh, you know, that is priority to where the committed capital, right, provide for our investors is, 
Um, in some of the deals that we have worked with, um, there is actually limited allocation. So in those cases, the fund will take all the allocation that's available and there will, there will be no additional allocation for uh, syndicate investors. Uh, while, while in other deals, there may be the availability for syndicate investors. Right, absolutely. And uh, talking about the investment thesis at Reflect Ventures, uh, uh, Mike, you want to weigh in on this? What's, what's the investment thesis at uh, Reflect Ventures? Sure. So when you look at developing markets today, emerging markets, what you can see is that they're going mobile first. They're following the path that India and China already followed. Today, a truck driver in Pakistan, for example, will invest in a smartphone, not to play games on. He doesn't need to play Candy Crush, but as a business tool, something that he can use in order to get loads, to have a load already booked for him from wherever he's going back home rather than having to find that load once he arrives. This means he spends one less night sleeping under his truck. It means he gets home faster. It means he does more loads over the course of a year. He makes more money, and he's better off. This is happening all over in emerging markets today. And we are riding this way. We are investing in the companies that are re-engineering large but archaic industries and bringing them into the mobile age. Right, absolutely. And when we're talking about emerging markets, uh, what exact uh, kind of markets are we talking about specifically? And what are the most exciting markets uh, that uh, you're most excited by? Uh, Joe, you want to comment on this? Sure. Uh, in terms of emerging markets, we are, we are focused on a few geographies. One is um, Africa and Middle East, uh, plus Turkey. Another one is uh, South Asia, so the regions of India, Pakistan, and, and Bangladesh, uh, and uh, Southeast Asia, as well as Latin America. Uh, these areas are exciting to us uh, because these are areas that have uh, generally good demographics. And I think the easiest way of uh, saying that is um, they have young and growing populations. Uh, they have significant economic size, and it is still growing, even given the macroeconomic conditions that are happening in the world today. And uh, also, they're enjoying increasing GDP per capita. Right, absolutely. And uh, what, what stage are you typically uh, coming in uh, and investing in these companies? We generally invest at the earlier stages. So we have generally invested in deals that are pre-Series A and leading up to... Um, perhaps Series A. Okay, so not super early as well and uh, not not Series A as well. So in somewhere in the middle, right? Uh, somewhere in the middle, but in in uh, industries where we've gone a certain amount of investing experience and expertise, we are actually going uh, earlier stage. Sometimes uh, we will end up being the first check-in. And, and uh, that's a, you know, in these situations, we do feel comfortable because we've invested in a number of these similar type country uh, companies in other countries, and we're actually in a, a position to offer them a lot of help and value. Uh, some examples are you know, how to structure the business model based on experiences from other countries, and some of these may even be that a, an operator in a new country wants to run a, a model, uh, but an existing tech and operating system has been built in, in a different country, and we can save them a lot of time by importing that model for him to use. Right, right. And uh, 
like once once a company has pitched to you uh then what does it look like the, what does the evaluation process look like what what are the specific things that you look for in a company while making the decision whether to invest in this company or not uh mike do you want to weigh in, weigh in on this one sure so number one is is it the right model we are looking for companies that are operating in industries that are natural oligopolies or monopolies so as one example everyone keeps pushing us again and again look at lending to the unbanked there's a huge amount of money going in there but when we look at lending to the unbanked we see that this does not seem to be a natural oligopoly or monopoly it's like banking there are dozens and dozens of banks in most countries all competing in the lending market lending to the unbanked is going to be the same who wants to be in a business which is a race to the bottom lower and lower margins we haven't touched it on the other hand consider trucking marketplaces you look at the history of uber and such and you see that when you have a two-sided marketplace it is very very hard to be number 2 being number 3 is just impossible right how many places have three really successful uh ride booking uh apps out there doesn't exist in trucking marketplaces if we're in a number 1 or number 2 in the industry we have a very very good chance of doing very very well it's almost de risk the second thing we look for is that they need to be able to get big in their local market we are not trying to pick global winners that is very hard the guys who say i can pick the best you know SaaS tool for doing um customer service well maybe they can but they got to pick the best one in the world pretty much that's a very very hard thing to do when there are so many centers of excellence now out there for us it's much simpler if we're investing in trucking in pakistan it doesn't matter if somebody else is doing a great job of doing trucking in bangladesh trucking marketplace in bangladesh they're not competitive the same for the trucking marketplaces that are in africa they are not competitive and if you can actually be a big player in trucking in pakistan you're going to be very very big indeed trucking matters if the trucks stop rolling the food riots start in 7 days if facebook shuts down well i'm sorry you got to find a different place to look at pictures of people's cats so those are the biggest things that we look After that it's about the team and the company are they doing are the numbers good do we believe in the team right right and uh, and as uh, jor mentioned you're sometimes also being the first check investor and since you're investing in uh, different geographies essentially uh, and that means that you are sometimes not in the same city or the same even the same country in the company that you're investing in so then how do you conduct due diligence and Uh, ensure that that's actually a sound business for the market that it's actually operating in which you're not extremely familiar with uh jor you want to comment on this sure um in most of our transactions um we have generally invested with uh other co-investors that are either global investors and usually combined with a local market expert investor Uh, in many of these countries these comp- these these co-investors may be a local country fund or may maybe a local corporate or local individuals so that's how we coordinate our investing and make sure we have local sources that can assist in the due diligence 
and the background checks. I would, I would like to add on one of the points that Michael added earlier, which is our due diligence on the team. And I think, you know, in these, in these macroeconomic times, right, um, the, it's very important for us to seem that, see that the, the, the team is able to, number one, execute. A lot of that involves selling and marketing. Two is raising capital. If the team is not presentable, they're not going to raise, be able to raise capital in the current round or in the subsequent rounds. And three right now, which I think is a very uh, uh, um, key uh, criteria now is also, can they, can they survive a downturn? Um, and you know, be ready to make very hard decisions, i.e. cutting costs, scaling down, uh, because if they don't, um, you know, they will not be able to maintain a good cash position in their company and may have to face closure down the road. I'll add one example of how this can work when it works well. Um, we've done a lot of investing in Pakistan. We invested in Truck It In, which is a trucking marketplace there, and we invested in Dastgear, which is neighborhood store supply chain. And they both told us about a company called Oware, which was warehousing on demand. And Dastgear was using them, they were a customer. Trucking In was a supplier providing last mile fulfillment, right? Helping them basically deliver product out of their warehouses to its owner. We were able to look at them from both directions and get an idea that their business partners, who we'd already invested in, felt that they were a good company. And they get, that gave us a lot of confidence when we invested. Right, absolutely. And uh, like talking about these investments that you're making, like uh, are there any specific sectors uh, that you're most focused on that you'd like to see more than other sectors? Or are you like open to everything and then whatever shows the best promise, are you going to invest there? So what's, what's your take on that one? Uh, Mike, you want to take that? Sure. So first off, I would say that we are very narrow. We're looking for B2B, B2B2C in logistics, supply chain, distribution, transportation, and fintech rails. So when we say fintech rails, we mean the underlying tech on fintech that everybody's going to need to use rather than the products that 20 different companies are going to try to sell to everybody, you know, like BNPL. BNPL is becoming a commodity in all these countries, and we don't want to touch it. Um, that's what we like. So some of the sectors, we, we like to repeat our investments. We want to invest in the same thing in more than one market. Uh, we are very interested in trucking marketplaces. We are very interested in warehousing on demand. We are very interested in social commerce. We are very interested in asset-like career. Um, Joe, what have I missed? I, I know I've missed. Uh, I, I know I've missed one of the big ones. Oh, neighborhood store supply chain. That has been a huge hit, and unfortunately, it's very hard now to find a company in that is a leader in a decent-sized economy that isn't just too large for us to invest. But we got into four of them, early stage, and we're very happy we did. Yeah, so, sounds great. And uh, one more thing that I want to talk about is uh, exits, because uh, when you're making these investments, the ultimate goal is to when they maybe see an exit and, and that liquidation even so that uh, you can see the returns. 
So uh, when you're looking at companies, is that also playing at the back of your head that, okay, is there a potential exit for this, this idea or this product that's just being built out right now? Uh, is, is that at your yes. uh, mind? And then at what is the exit multiple, uh, if that's in your head uh, at all? What are you targeting? How big should the ex exit be? Yeah. So the first issue is, can there be an exit? We're talking about companies that are not your typical, you know, okay, we've got our headquarters in Chicago, you know, let's go and IPO on NASDAQ. So the first question is, will there be an exit at all? Now, I think there is good evidence that there will be an exit. First off, uh, one of the largest emerging markets exits out there was Caspi, which is a uh, neobank in Kazakhstan, of all places. Not the place you pick for a big exit. But they went and they exited with, I think, a $10 billion valuation on the London Stock Exchange. And then this also gives you an idea of the variety of exits out there. It's not all NASDAQ and NYSE. Uh, Jumia is, in the, uh, is public in the U.S. I forget NASDAQ or NYSE. So that's another option. Uh, there have been exits uh, via acquisition. So Kareem which is a rideshare company started out of Pakistan. They sold, they sold to Uber for $3.1 a very nice exit, and one of the reasons why there are so many great startups in Pakistan. Of course, India has had a number of exits. I'm sure you know that, Prashant. Um, all of these are possible. We're also very interested in the idea of roll-ups. If we're invested into three, four, five trucking marketplaces in Africa, in the Middle East, in South Asia, in, Tur in Turkey, there is, on our, there is a potential that they are not able to exit individually for them to merge and to form a giant that can go into IPO in New York or in London, right? This is a potential. I don't think anyone has yet pulled that off. Roll-ups have been done in the United States I'm not, and in developed economies, but not something like that. But we will see. Right, right. Uh, great. And I, I always love uh, like, uh, coming across a fund that's investing across the globe uh, and yeah, investing across different countries and not just focused on just one specific region. Uh, and in the US, we like the com common places that you will find that investors are focused on, okay, we invest in New York startups and then there, there are funds focused on Austin. So, uh, so it's always good to see like funds focused across different geographies. But one uh, potential issue that you can face uh, as a fund that across different geographies is that how do you get quality deal flow and that too of early stage companies uh, coming to you and pitching you? So how do you get that deal flow in? Uh, Joe, you want to answer this one? Sure. Um, for us, that's actually not been a problem. Um, after making a number of investments, um, uh, we actually became decently well-known in the spaces that, that we invest in. So we actually get a pretty good choice of all the new companies in these spaces trying to fundraise. Um, one of the benefits of investing in you know these sectors or in these countries is that this is not a space that your typical average investor wants to invest in. Uh, I think this works out for us very well uh, because there is a scarcity of capital um, you know, there is a lot of value being created and, uh, you know, less people are paying attention. And I think uh, a lot of these 
you know, a, a lot of what these companies are doing will become a lot more evident once they become larger in scale and then they, you know, proceed to raise a, a larger round of financing or, or have some kind of, uh, some kind of exit event, then everyone will start paying attention. Right. Absolutely. Yep. Mike, you want to weigh in on this? This is one of the advantages of being narrow. If you are starting a warehousing on demand company, and you start asking around who is investing in warehousing on demand, who is calling up and ask people and asking, do you know any good warehousing on demand companies? There are not many names that you're going to hear, but I guarantee to you, one of the names you're going to hear is Reflect Ventures. The same for farm to store. There are plenty of people who will invest in farm to store. Everyone has seen Ninja Cart. But if you ask who's out there looking in Africa, in Latin America, in Turkey, again, you're going to hear Reflect Ventures. And so these people then reach out to us. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's awesome. Like being narrow uh, gives you that additional advantage that you can be known for that particular segment or sector that you invest in. And especially if that's not a very crowded place uh, or not uh, the fancy places like fintech uh, that where everyone is investing in, right? Uh, but I want to understand that was this your uh, initial planning when you were building out the thesis that, okay, we are going to target these areas where there are not a lot of big players, not a lot of investors attracted to those spaces, and we are going to target those areas. Uh, was that the initial focus or is what has it evolved over time? I would say it is a combination. When we sat down and started strategizing how to do this on a professional basis, one of the questions was, are we going to do what everybody else is doing? Are we going to be calling up YC, Y Combinator graduates and saying, will you take a check from us? And if that's going to be our model, how do we explain to anybody why they should invest in us rather than any one of the hundred other people who are following that model? Are we the smartest people in the room? Are we able to get into deals at a better valuation? Why pick us? Why go with us? And we very quickly decided that being one of many doing the same thing wasn't going to really be a great way to succeed. Right? Just like we talked about uh, lending to the unbanked and the, the companies trying to do that. They're doing what everybody else is doing. They're not going to be able to succeed. Right? It's hard. And we said, where do we have experience? We all had pretty strong emerging markets experience. We had strong B2B logistics supply chain distribution experience. We said, well, put together what we know, what our skills are, and target something that is going very clearly going to be big. We could see that. We looked at, for example, uh, you know, the first area we started investing in here was neighborhood store supply chain. And it just blew our mind the potential size of the companies that were going to be created in this space. Um, you're probably familiar with Udan in India, but have you heard of ShopUp? in Bangladesh, of Sari in Saudi Arabia, of Ulu and Gurangada in Indonesia. These are huge companies that virtually nobody has heard of, but they are growing incredibly fast. They are pulling in hundreds of millions of dollars of investment. Uh, Udan is already a unicorn, I think $6 billion valuation, although I don't, I won't swear to it till I check it on Crunchbase. These are going to be Huge, huge companies, and they fly right under the radar for everybody. Right, absolutely. And this is what we wanted to invest in. Mm -hmm. Yep, 
Sounds great. And by the way, yep. Go ahead. One thing I'll also say about that: we feel very strongly that our model is able to get VC level returns, but at much lower risk. When we go and we invest in the number one, number two, or number three company in these spaces in one of these countries. For example, we invested in Meds and More in Pakistan. They were number two in pharmacy supply chain. They're now number one. They are, their, their potential future is to be the McKesson. McKesson is, I believe, a $30 billion company in the United States supplying to pharmacies and hospitals in the United States. That is what they can be for Pakistan. Pakistan is more than the U.S. It won't be a $30 billion company. Maybe they're just 10 or $5 billion. That's still a pretty big win. The odds of it are actually a heck of a lot higher than in your typical VC investment because there's really only one significant competitor out there for them. There is potential for both to win or for meds and more to win. Compare that with I'm going to invest in, for example, one of these SaaS companies doing um, you know, bookkeeping for SMEs, what are your odds of picking the winner? Right, right. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. Uh, that when, when there is less competition, there are more chances of winning. And when these are such big markets, when you win, you win big. And that just automatically generates your VC scale returns without the usual risk that comes along with VC investments. Right? Yeah. Awesome. And when you begin to hit on that and understand how that works... Right. say, well, we got to keep doing this. Absolutely. And the one thing with the syndicate model is that you are more or less salesman uh, all the time. You are at one time uh, pitching to uh, in, uh, LPs that come and invest with us uh, that we, are, we have access to the steel flow uh, of this exciting sector that we are targeting. And this is the one that you should be investing in. So you should be pitching them. And then once they are in, then companies come in and pitch you. And then if you're convinced, then you go and pitch the LPs again uh, that, okay, this is the company that we're excited by. We want to invest in them. And then they choose uh, whether to invest or not. So I want to understand the challenges uh, of running a syndicate. Uh, do you think uh, it is good or bad? Of course, there are advantages to run a syndicate versus a VC fund. And there are probably some disadvantages as well. But uh, I want to uh, learn the challenges of running a syndicate. Has it ever been an issue that, okay, the LPs in our syndicate are not very engaged. They are not seeing our emails or are not investing uh, as much as we want them to. Uh, has that sort of a thing ever been a concern? Of course, this has been a problem, especially recently. I think everybody knows that there's been a big pullback in investor confidence over the past three months. Um, <clears throat> when you are a fund... You've got commitments, and you've got money in the bank. And the fact that every, all the investors are running for the exits doesn't matter that much. Uh, it still matters. We know funds that are having trouble getting investors to actually meet their commitments, but it's much less of a problem. For us, every deal, we have to the first thing we have to do is convince investors that now is the time to invest. Then it's a matter question of, do you want to invest in our deal? Now, I personally think now is an awesome time to invest because valuations are down. You can get into what used to be difficult to get into deals because there's less investment out there. And the companies that are built today, they're going to be strong, they're going to be lean, and they are going to have incredibly high multiples when they exit. 
But a lot of people are scared. Now, the other thing, though, about doing syndicates, uh, I think we've all heard now about hair-blown-back moments. And perhaps I have a bit of advantage there by not having hair, but sometimes you feel that when you're talking to a really, really awesome founder. right? I sympathize a little bit with the Sequoia people who talked about having a hair-blown-back moment because I felt that. But after you finish that meeting, you need to sit down with your partners and you need to say, can I get 30 skeptical people who are investing their own money and who are very protective of that money to believe in this founder and what he is doing? Yes, he blows back our hair, but does he have the right model? Does his business have the right economics? Does he have the right team? Is he in the right market? And you need to address those questions, no matter how much you like the founder and how excited you felt after getting off the call with him. So you get the hair blown back moment, but then you get the reality check. Can I bring in the syndicate members? And this is one of the reasons why we plan to keep the syndicates even after we raise the fund. After doing this for a year and a half, we think that having to convince syndicate members who have no vested interest in investing, they can invest with other people, having to convince them of every single deal has forced us to be better investors and will continue to force us to be better investors. Right. Uh, that's definitely a super advantage that you get so much experience in, uh, first, you are being pitched to by the founders and then you're going out and pitching them to the LPs. And that, like this two layer of pitching that's happening, uh, just actually solidifies even your understanding of the business. Uh, and is this a good investment or not? And that essentially makes you a better investor because you just don't have to be convinced your own self. You have to convince other people as well. And that, that is uh, probably one reason I feel that every investor that probably has to wants to have a VC fund one day should start out as a syndicate. That That has multiple things. Like it, it can build your network uh, in the investor community, build your network in the founder community, build your track record and uh, like strengthen your fundamentals. Like like you said, that double layer of pitching that first the founder is pitching and then you're, you're pitching to the investors. That really solidifies your skills as, as an investor and to spot the uh, loopholes which are there in a business or what's not good about a business. Because when you are pitching someone else, then you find out, okay, this is the missing piece that, I probably I didn't find out at first, but now I see it because now I have to pitch to someone else, right? I totally agree. Um, the other thing I will add is that it's an awful lot of hard. The, the extra layer of dealing with the individual syndicate investors is something that people doing a fund do not have to deal with, right? They have to do it in order to get the initial commitments and they have to chase the commitments, but they do not have to do it per investment. So it's a lot of work. If you're going to do this, understand that if you're doing it right, you're going to spend... You're going to do, you know, you're going to do a lot of work. Absolutely. Yeah. Running a syndicate is certainly more work than a VC fund. Or maybe like a VC fund is more or less divided that you're pitching to the LPs first. You raise a fund. That's that's one part of the job. Once it's done, then you're investing. So that's other part of the job. You don't have to do the first part again. But then as a syndicate, you're doing both things simultaneously all the time uh, that you're Correct. constantly pitching to LPs, constantly getting pitched to. So that's certainly a lot of work. Uh, awesome. And uh, my last main question before I go for the closing rapid fire round is, uh, Joe, if you want to take this one, uh, what change uh, do you wish to see in the VC ecosystem? Changes I'd like to see in the VC ecosystem. 
Number one, I would like to see more skepticism. There have been too many, there have been too many investments that have failed spectacularly and where afterwards, you know, in hindsight, it's been pretty obvious that DD wasn't done well. Um, and, you know, I can go back a lot further than FTX. Um, you know, you can go look up UBio, where one of the founders was actually lying about her age in order to get into 30 under 30 lists. That they raised $100 million, and, you know, nobody apparently checked her ID. Then the second thing is I think that anyone who's really doing a fund, unless they are one of the huge ones, which really can be, you know, has the staff to really understand everything, people should be more specialized. The reason is that we've already seen just understanding the industries that we invest in, incredibly time-consuming and difficult. We spend a huge amount of time studying them. When I see somebody who says, well, I will invest cross-industry, you know, I invest in everything from an old deep tech, really, you know, AI, you know, genetics, you know, um, quantum computing. I'm just so skeptical. There need to be more narrow specialists who actually are good at something, as opposed to generalists who say, I'm the smartest guy in the room. I can pick the best companies because there's really, you know, I'm not, I'm not convinced any of those guys actually are the smartest guy in the room. If they were, they'd have a different strategy. Right. Now, moving on to the closing questions, uh, which is five quick questions about the fund and you have to give five quick answers. So who will be taking this one? Sure or Mike? Sure. I think you're a bit late. I'll do it. Okay, sure. So what are those sectors and regions you invest in? So sectors, B2B and B2B2C in supply chain, distribution, logistics, fintech rails, transportation. The regions, Southeast Asia, South Asia, Middle East and Africa, Latin America, and Turkey, if you count that as sector. Right. Awesome. And what's the typical stage of investment you come in? Um, usually post-traction, occasionally a bit earlier, and usually pre-A, right? Occasionally up to the A. Got it, got it. And what's the typical check size? Uh, 100K to 300K. But as a syndicator, it always depends on your syndicate members. Sometimes there's a lot of appetite for a deal. Sometimes there isn't. Got it. And uh, where can founders pitch you? Founders can email us. Um, I, I hope you'll put the email on the list here. Uh, it would be um, invest at reflectventures.com. And, you know, the most important thing I'd want to tell founders is do a proper introduction to your company with enough information for us to know whether or not it's worth our time to talk to you. Don't just send an email saying, hi, will you invest in me? You'd be amazed at the number of emails we get like that with no explanation of who they are, what they are doing, or why we would want to invest. Uh, and the last one, where, where can our listeners follow you? The best place to follow us is LinkedIn. That's where we have the most activity because the people we invest in and our investors, that's where they spend their time. Awesome. I'll make sure to put all the links that you just mentioned in the show notes below and the email ID that you mentioned so that our listeners can get there easily. Thank you for coming on, uh, Mike and Jor. It was a pleasure hosting you and happy investing. Thank you, Prashant. It was a pleasure being here. Thank you, Prashant. And I hope we do get a chance to talk with you again sometime. Absolutely. Pleasure hosting you. Thank you for coming on. Mm -hmm.